Today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 10. What we saw the last time was Revelation chapter 9 with the demonic horde. Kind of a scary chapter, maybe if you're not familiar with the Bible or uh, you're not sure of where you stand with the Lord. It could be a little, certainly intimidating, a time when the abyss is opened up and demonic horde will come out of that abyss and really take over the earth. But that's not for those who are in Christ. And today we're going to try to decipher two really important aspects of chapter 10, which is the angel, the mighty angel, and the little book. So let's start chapter 10 with verse 1. And I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had a little book open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Who is this angel? I could give you my opinion or what maybe other Bible commentators think this is. But I probably think it would be better to describe him first before, because in your mind, you'll probably formulate your own opinion. Number one, he was clothed with a cloud. And all these things have uh, precedence in the Old and the New Testament. And I've said to you before, if you follow the Old and the New Testament and you're good at it or you, you remember a lot of it or you've been studying it for years, Revelation will seem that much more easy to grasp. Okay, clothed with a cloud. God manifested himself in Exodus 33 to the children of Israel in a cloud. And we know that even in the New Testament, Jesus, his parousia, okay, his, his uh, presence, his coming, right? He comes in clouds, the Bible tells us. So there's your first clue. Second, he had a rainbow on his head or around his head. This represents peace and mercy. And we saw in Revelation 4 that the rainbow was in the throne room of God. It was around the throne. The third point, this, this angel, or really messenger in the Greek, uh, he had a face like the sun. That's a picture of glory. We saw that in Revelation 1 with Jesus. And also, when Jesus walked the earth, we saw in the transfiguration that his countenance was so bright like the sun that it was kind of startling to James, John, and Peter when they saw this. Four, he had feet as a fire. That's a picture of judgment. And we saw that in Jesus' case in Revelation chapter 1. And five, when he roars, it's like the roar of a lion, which is a picture of strength. And we saw that in Revelation 5, uh, attributed to Jesus. Uh, If we were in a courtroom setting, probably an attorney would stand up and say, he's leading the witness, Your Honor. Okay, so I'm kind of leading you down a road, but the sixth point, he had his foot on the land and his foot on the sea. That's a picture of dominance and possession, maybe laying claim to the earth and all of creation, and we saw that in Revelation chapter 5. Now, let's take a step back. If you're in this time period and you're reading this, you might have been reminded of, if you know your history, the Colossus of Rhodes. The Colossus of Rhodes was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was a 107-foot-tall statue that was erected in the 3rd century B.C. that really stood as a gateway to the city of Rhodes. It was this tremendous statue, okay? And it was destroyed by an earthquake only 56 years later, never to be repaired. Here, there's some similarities in the sense that this angel or this messenger uh, was so powerful. It was a powerful picture with no possible means of destruction, 
So there's strong opinions for this angel, again, or for this messenger being Christ. And others feel strongly that this was maybe an archangel or another mighty angel. The name for the angel Gabriel, his name in the Hebrew means strength of God. And the angel Michael uh, in the Hebrew, the translation is who is like God. And there's subtle nuances in the Hebrew language. Is Jesus an angel? Well, both in the Hebrew and the Greek, the word angel has dual meaning. It's, uh, in um, Greek, it's angelos. I believe in the, in the Hebrew, it's molak or molek. Uh, but either way, it's number one, two meanings. Number one, a created being which is, you know, the angels that we know. They have the wings, they fly, they have supernatural powers. And number two, the other meaning for this is just, quite frankly, messenger. And that word messenger has been used for people, just messengers. Uh, and again, these both have been used with, with uh, equal uh, times. So the question is, is Jesus a created being? Well, I think you would all answer emphatically, no. And if you've been with us from Revelation 1 all the way through, there is no case for Jesus being a created being. He is a part of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, equal with God, Okay, the, one of the personages of God. But is he a messenger? Same word, different uh, translation. The answer is yes. In the Old Testament, Jesus actually often manifested himself as the angel of the Lord. We saw that in Joshua 5 and similarities in Daniel chapter 12. And also Judges 13, which I'm going to do Wednesday night uh, in January. But why didn't John just say so? Why do we have to try to figure this out? Why didn't the Apostle John just tell us who the angel is? Well, let me submit to you that he was probably overwhelmed by what he saw. Picture you, me, I'd probably be the same way. You know, he's just a human being. And he sees this, this huge messenger and I'm trying to describe the messenger. And he had one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. And he was really big. And his face, I couldn't really make it out because it was so bright. And there was this, these clouds and this rainbow and roar like a, a lion. Now do you get the picture? Again, I'm speculating. I don't know exactly why. We're not really told who it is or what it is. But that's one definitely good reason. Remember, he saw Jesus and he says, And I turned and I saw a lamb as if it was slain. Well, we can figure out that that was Christ. Okay? He died for our sins. He was slain uh, so that we could have life. Verse 4. So, so the question is, or the point is, uh, you know, I'm not going to say dogmatically, but I believe I'm certainly leaning towards this messenger being Christ, okay? but not as a created being. So I just want to make that clear. Verse 4. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. So the seven thunders uttered. Who are the seven thunders? I have no idea. <laughs> but they uttered something. And we can only know the mysteries that God has revealed to us. And there are other things that probably when we go to be with him for eternity, he'll be teaching us forever about himself. Maybe other things that we think we really want to know when we get to heaven, probably by the time we're in his presence and see his glory, we're not going to care. So who knows what's going to happen? But for whatever reason, we don't know what the seven thunders uttered. And anything that's speculated is just that, speculation. And it's not the first time that God commanded mysteries to be sealed up. We see this in Daniel 12.4. And we also saw it in 2 Corinthians 12.4. That's not a mistake. And we also see it in Matthew 2.4 in, in, uh, in the chapter of Matthew 24. 
And we can get caught up in wanting to know everything. As a new believer, as I started to grow in Christ, it was a thirst for knowledge. But sometimes that thirst for knowledge kind of takes us over. We're not going to know everything. Uh, And it's funny because I think that even Bible teachers get caught up in a prideful moment of trying to have an edge over another Bible teacher. And before you know it, it's all about head knowledge. And we can get caught up in wanting to know everything, all the mysteries. And certainly if you join a cult or a Gnostic-type organization, they will provide you with answers for everything, although they may not be the right answers. Okay, the Gnostics were those that even in Paul's day, they would secretly try to pull Christians out of the church and say, I understand what the Apostle Paul is teaching you, but we have something that most people don't know about. Come follow us. And it's very enticing to the inquisitive mind. Esoteric meanings. But I think it's better for us, I believe the Bible tells us, that it's better for us to live every day for Christ. More more important. To put our best foot forward in our marriage as employees, as parents, as an upstanding member of the community and being a living example of Christ. And it's still good to desire the deeper thing of, things of God, but it's more important to live for Christ and understand and have that relationship with him. Some will act as if they know all things about the, about the scripture, all mysteries, but don't put it into practice. Paul tells us that knowledge puffs up but love edifies. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, though I know all the mysteries of God and though I know all prophecies, but I have not love, I am nothing. That's a pretty heavy statement. So you tell me you can know everything about the scripture, everything, and not have love and you're nothing? Well, Satan knows everything about the scripture, doesn't he? He knows the scripture better than all of us collectively. And what is it getting him? The lake of fire, because he's not acting on it. That's important to understand. Verse 5, and if anyone wants to, oh, excuse me, and to the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be no longer a delay. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mysteries of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. So after the seventh trumpet is sounded, which hasn't happened yet from where we are, God's mysteries that have been declared to his prophets would be finished or revealed or make sense completely at this point. I read the scripture before in 1 Peter 1 where it says that even this salvation, this grace that God was putting forth, even in the olden times, and he would prophesy it through his prophets, that the angels and the prophets desired to look into this stuff, but they didn't really get the full picture. And as Jesus died on the cross and he, he shed his blood for the remission of our sins and he rose again, all this, the puzzle pieces now started to come together. Okay? So we see a furthering of the, the mysteries declared starting to be revealed or understood. There's a lot of mysteries spoken of in the Bible, but what specifically happens in the seventh trumpet? If you've read ahead, it's the world or the creation being reclaimed by Christ. That's one of the biggest things that we find uh, in that seventh trumpet being blown. In addition, the book of Revelation, in the Greek, Revelation, Apocalypsis, is the revealing, is the unveiling of the mysteries of Christ. And who is he? And what are his future plans for his believers, for his followers? Other mysteries in scripture that can be further understood as a result of this? 
You could say they're runners-up, or you could say that they run pretty much concurrently with this mystery. What are some mysteries in the Bible? What does the Bible talk about? Well, the rapture is kind of a mystery. We see events that lead up to the rapture, but we don't really know exactly when the rapture happens or some of the, the more detailed logistics, except for what we read in Scripture, what's revealed to us. Another mystery is Christ and the church. The Apostle Paul talks about that. He says that a husband and wife relationship is a, is a parallel to Christ and the church. And because Christ's relationship as a husband to his church is so perfect that the husband, okay, the way he has to deal with his wife, and maybe that's not a good word, in Ephesians 5, or have a relationship or love his wife, okay, um, is, is a parallel to Christ and the church. So as husbands, really, when we look at how we're supposed to treat our wives, our example is Jesus and how he treated the church, which is a very tall order and a high bar to set. But it's good. Three, another mystery is the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of grace, Gentile inclusion. All of a sudden, God comes up in this time period. You know, Jesus said, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. But there was a point in time in history where I'm thankful for it as a Gentile, that the Lord included Gentiles in the message of salvation and the message of grace. It's a mystery. Four, the mystery of faith. Faith, you know, after 10, 13, 15, 20 years, my faith grows stronger. How is that? You know, you look on your computer and you're downloading something, and I love it. 50%, 70%. I love that little meter, so I kind of know where we're at here. But we don't have like a little thing where we lift up our shirt and there's a, a little battery pack that says you're at 70% faith. You know, in 10 years, you'll be at 90% faith. How does that happen? It's a mystery. But as we go stronger in Christ, as we continue to read his word and pray and have that relationship with him, our faith increases. It's a mystery. Fifth mystery, and this, there's many of them, but I'll just leave it at this one. Um, the age-old question heretofore, from times past to now, is why is justice delayed so long? We know God is the God of justice, right? He's the God of, you know, nobody should suffer, you know, uh, you know, wrongly. Nobody should be abused or picked on or oppressed. Why does God allow it for so long? And when we covered the souls under the altar in Revelation, they asked the same question. They were martyred for their belief in Christ. And when they went to heaven and they went to be with God, they said, how long, O Lord, will it take for you to avenge our blood and right the wrongs of society? And the Lord said, wait a little long, little while longer. So the mystery of why justice is delayed by a God of justice is also a mystery, isn't it? In verse 6, this mighty messenger uh, or angel uh, was swearing by heaven. Well, another good case for at least deity because in Genesis 22, after Abraham proved that he would uh, give up anything in his life for God, including his only son, after that was over, God said, I will bless you and I will bless your your descendants, and I will swear by myself, God says. And Romans further elaborates it because if you're going to swear by something, you should swear by the greater, not the lesser. So if God is making a promise and he swears an oath to something, okay, to keep his promises, he might as well swear by himself because there's nothing, you can go as far as you want in creation, the universe, wherever you go, God is the greatest. So God swore by himself. In verse 8, Last few verses. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. 
And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Before I go into the little book, uh, because there's really a flow here, I want to just jump to verse 11 and what that means. He's telling John he must prophesy, the apostle, prophesy. We think of maybe some of the prophecies that are coming to pass today that have been prophesied thousands of years ago. That is pretty neat, right? Ezekiel and Isaiah and some of these different grandiose prophecies. But part of prophecy is just speaking forth God's word. You know, in the prophetic books, you would have a far prophecy. But to show that to pe- the people that this was a true prophet of God, they would make some near prophecy so they could kind of, you know, um, verify them, right? Uh, so, but prophecy is also just speaking God's word. So he's telling John, speak my word. He's telling them, really, to finish penning Revelation. Right? This was the unveiling of Christ. The Apostle John was to be diligent in taking everything that he saw and heard, except for maybe the seven thunders and some choice things that God wanted him to leave out, to finish penning this prophetic book. Also, to continue evangelizing. These were uh, God's missions or declarations to the Apostle John. Now, the book. What does this little scroll represent? Well, if you've been with us, chapter 5 especially, you see a lot of parallels. Remember, chapter 4, chapter 5, the throne room, um, you know, it appears that it's God the Father on the throne and he has the scroll and no one is able to take that scroll. But we see Jesus is worthy to take the scroll and to loose the seals. So it is quite possible that this is a, a revisiting of that scroll. Okay, The little scroll of book, what does it represent? At the very least, it represents God's word. Let me read to you a parallel scripture, only a few verses in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 2, 9 Ezekiel says, now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate it and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. Let's go back to Revelation 10. Most likely, again, this scroll is the same scroll that we found in chapter 5. If that's the case, what does it contain? Probably contains, based on our our, uh, previous studies, the deed to creation and spells out the rest of God's plan. So the important question is, why was it sweet in his mouth, sweet in Ezekiel's mouth, and why was it bitter in his stomach? Let's break it down, with no pun intended. The first, God's word is sweet. A few things. Number one, the word of God in the scripture is compared to food. It's compared to milk, meat, honey, and bread. God's word sustains us. In Ezekiel and John's case, that word that sustained us was also sweet. Two, God's word is what we crave. If we look at that physiologically and we look at that spiritually, they both apply. We we crave God's word. There's that void in us that we need to fill, and it needs to be filled with God. Now, this is very important to the holiday season because 
you know, what do we do? We, we exchange gifts. Some of us are hopeful for certain gifts over others. Some of us drop hints to each other to talk about the type of gifts that we would like. But those who don't know God look to these gifts, look to these things of the world to satisfy the void or the, the emptiness that needs to be filled with something. To some it's partying, to some it's drugs, to some it's success, to some it's... And you just go through the whole list, right? But it's really God's word is what we're seeking. And no matter how hard we go to find all these other things in the word, the world, it's only by the relationship with Jesus Christ as our Savior will we fill that void, okay? Um, I mean, I look at my own life, and I even tell my wife for Christmas, I'm like, don't get me anything. What more do I need in life? I am blessed that, do we really think about, number one, the gift of life. When we wake up every morning, how our bodies function, how we can breathe in air in the spring, your eyes are just assaulted by the beauty of the flowers that start to bud, right? The gift of life. But on, and second order, or even more importantly than that, is when we're born again, we have the gift of everlasting life. And we have the tendency to take that for granted. At the end of this earthly journey, if we're in Christ, we have everlasting life. We will live together in happiness, in peace, in contentment. No more sorrow, no more trouble, no more pain, Revelation tells us. For the former things have passed away. So right there, I have everything that I possibly need. Everything else is just gravy. And on top of that, I have the honor and the privilege to actually stand here before you and preach God's word. What a blessing that is to me. And even more amazing is that you all come out and listen to me. <laughs> That's amazing in itself. But, you know, what more could I ask for? I mean, and I think we really need to appreciate the gift of life, but more importantly, the gift of eternal life that God offers us to those who are in Christ. Third, God's word is the good news of salvation. God has a plan for us, right? And you know what? Nobody wants to go through life and, without purpose. We all need purpose in our life. That book, The Purpose Driven Life, was a bestseller. Why? Because so many are walking around, even Christians. What do I do? What's my purpose? They don't know. They're looking for purpose. But the purpose is right there in the scripture. God has a plan for each and every one of us, and he's tailored it, which is amazing, to each one of us. Okay? So God has a plan for us. And he desires restored fellowship. That's why he gave us um, salvation. Second point. First is God's word is sweet. Second point, God's word is bitter. And God's word was, was bitter in the stomach of John when truth and reality set in. It's a double-edged sword. The first point, God's word often contains the bad news of judgment for those in rebellion. And judgment is at full swing at this point. Okay? Now, we're looking really to the future, but John is speaking of it as, a, as kind of recording history. So it's kind of wild how the whole time thing works out. But in this point, judgment is at full swing in the book of Revelation. Two, all of mankind needs to repent and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But unfortunately, Jesus said few in the world choose to lay hold of that. Choose to lay hold of that. Very few. Many seek the wide road that leads to destruction. Few seek the narrow road that leads to everlasting life. Third point, even today, sadly, much of Christianity, especially in America, is in bad shape. John 14 and John 15, I think every Christian, you know, John 3.16, that's the moniker of our faith, right? But John 14, the chapter, and John 15 is very important. Because in John 14, Jesus says, I put the world in two camps, but I'm a Christian. Just relax for a minute, Jesus says. Those who love me and those who don't love me. I'm a Christian. Sit tight for a minute. If you love me, you will follow my word. 
That means read the word, get something out of it, and actually do it. Jesus says, those who don't love me will not follow my word. Well, there's some with the name Christian that, I don't know, for whatever reason, it's a cultural issue or a social issue, but they don't follow any of Jesus' words. I'd be frightened if I read that and I didn't follow his words. It doesn't mean that we're not going to sin. Please, don't get me wrong. I sin, you know, uh, but we need to follow his words. In John 15, Jesus says this, great chapter. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branch. Without me, you can do nothing. And he said, you know what happens to the branches that don't give off fruit, that don't bear fruit? He goes, they dried, they're wither. I, I cut them off, I put them all in a pile, and I burn them. I set them on fire. There's a picture of a relationship with Jesus Christ, okay? That's pretty heavy stuff that Jesus has. There was a, a Baptist, I believe it was a Baptist pastor, that made this great statement that I, I had to write down. He said, as Christians, we've become evangelical fish with no spiritual backbone. That was in response to the whole um, thing in Washington State where they put next to the, the nativity scene in the state house, uh, right next to it, a sign from atheists basically denigrating people of faith. You people are, you know, backwards, you know, uh, faith in God causes, uh, you know, bondage and all these bad things, right? I mean, it's just a clear insult. So this pastor, he just spoke out about this and said, listen, we become evangelical fish with no spiritual backbone. We just look at everything, we ignore it. You know, that was his point. The third point is, why would God, or excuse me, why would John eat God's word in the first place? Number one, in the Apostle John's case, he was commanded to do it, and that's always a good reason. If God tells you to do something, you do it. It just makes a lot of sense. The second point for us is to assimilate it and to digest it, to make it applicable to our lives, not just knowing what it says. I have a friend, um, and he makes no bones about it. He's not a believer. He said he's read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation as a study. And I'm asking him, you know, what did you get out of it? Nothing. <laughs> it's a historical book. I don't know how you could read that entire Bible and not get anything out of it. And he, he, he's not a believer. He makes no bones about it. He just read it to read it. So, you know, we need to be applicable to our lives, not just to know what it says. There's no sense in knowing the word and not obeying it. But this is the harsh truth of reality. And let's look at the dichotomy or the, um, you know, the abstract part of it. But God's word is sweet because it contains the promises of God to the repentant and the faithful. But God's word is bitter because it also contains the truth about sin, about judgment, and about hell. God's word is sweet because our sufferings are coming to an end. Our tribulations, our problems, our, some people are just, they're believers and for whatever reason in their circumstances, they're barely hanging on to life. Our tribulations, our problems are coming to an end. Amen? Amen. However, God's word is bitter because the suffering of the rebellious is just beginning. And some of those rebellious are ones that we love and we've been praying for for years and there doesn't seem any, to be any fruit and signs of life spiritually. We need to keep praying for our loved ones because we don't know when this time period is coming. I want to read to you two scriptures before we close today. One is Isaiah 30. There's only um, four verses here. Isaiah 30, starting with verse 8. This is a point in Israel's history many thousands of years ago when Isaiah was the prophet, one of the prophets. 
And he says, here's the, the prophetic word. It says, now go, write it before them on a tablet and note it on a scroll that it may be for time to come forever and ever. That this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who says to the seers, do not see, and says to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things or correct things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Wow. A period of time where God's people looked at the prophets and said, don't tell us the truth. We don't want to hear about judgment. We don't want to hear about warning. We don't want to hear that we're doing something wrong. Things are going good. The economy's great. We got a lot of stuff. Lie to us. You know, just lie to me. It's unbelievable. You know, imagine how that broke God's heart. And there's a corollary, a corollary here, really, in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. I'll start with verse 2. Paul says to Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. I call this desire-based theology. Based on what your desires are and your wants in life, that's how you color God's word. And you live your life out of God's will because it's based on your desires. And, and I've covered this in the past. Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Oh, we have a smorgasbord of teachers in the Christian community, don't we? If we don't like one pastor, we go to the other one, and we keep hopping from teacher to teacher to teacher until we finally land on one that teaches us what we want to hear. And that's what the Bible says. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Ezekiel 33, I won't read the whole chapter, I'll paraphrase it. The watchman, the pastor, the spiritual leader, the motivational Christian speaker, has blood on his hands, has the blood of the of the people on his hands that he's preaching to if he doesn't warn of coming judgment. The minister is not to preach his favorite parts of the Bible and omit bitter portions. We see that a lot today, don't we? Everybody wants to preach a good message, a happy message. And they want to fill stadiums, and they do. Why? Because they're only preaching smooth things. They're not telling the truth. That's why I chastise Christian leaders who preach only smooth messages because they pack stadiums and they keep the money flowing. They lie and they further the sufferings of the unsaved. And that's a problem. We don't do that here. God's word is sweet, but God's word is also bitter. When we come to be perfected and we're in the Lord's presence and the time comes that the harvest comes and the wheat and the tares have grown up and, and the harvest time comes and they're both separated and the wheat is brought in to the harvest then we won't have to deal with this anymore. But right now, God's word contains both. So the bottom line is God's word is a mixed blessing. And this should encourage us. This scripture today, this chapter, should encourage us and give us a shot in the arm. We may feel timid. We may feel embarrassed. We may be foolish sharing our faith with others this Christmas season. We may get together with relatives that think that you're weird or in a cult or you're a Bible thumper. And in our hearts, and I know, listen, it, it, it has happened to me 
where you feel a little bit embarrassed, you feel a little bit sheepish because you're not in friendly territory. But take heart, look at the prophets. I mean, they were given messages to go out to a a rebellious people, and God said, they're going to beat you, they're going to stone you, they're going to imprison you, they're probably going to kill you. But here's my word, go give it to them. (laughs) And the prophets, you know, they, they did it because they wanted to be faithful to God. So I just want this to encourage you, especially I think it's a very timely message for this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your blessings, Lord, we thank you.